And so there I was in the midst of this pondering of this media story. Um, and I thought, I'm, I'm interested in legal matters, legal issues to that. But I did realize that I didn't know very much about the legal process. And that's why soon after I had uh, started doing these experiments on eyewitness memory, I volunteered my, my services for free to a uh, criminal defense attorney. I said, you know, I'll consult on a case with you. Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest this week is Elizabeth Loftus. She is generally considered to be, or I mean, at least according to one list, the most highly cited female psychologist of all time. She is also a controversial figure within the field. Her research has looked at the unreliability and She has used this line of research to testify as an expert witness in court. So we talk a lot about, you know, just the the basis of all of that throughout the conversation. But uh, the thing is that though she has testified on behalf of a range of defendants, and she's quick to point out, as she should be, that there are a lot of people who, you know, have not done anything wrong. That she has helped, you know, support the, you know, the 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 case to to acquit them. But uh, the most publicized cases that she's participated in have been high-profile men such as Harvey Weinstein. So, you know, for lack of a better term, some nasty dudes who've done some nasty shit. And uh, all of this was the subject of a recent New Yorker profile, actually. And it delved into the legacy of this work. And it, uh, I really loved this. It provided this, you know, detailed speculation, let's say, on the root causes of why Beth is so drawn to this topic and, you know, why she's dedicated so much of her career to bringing this general research on false memories to light in legal proceedings. So in this conversation, we talk about Beth being the only woman in her mathematical psychology PhD program, being voted least likely to succeed as a psychologist, um, finding a topic that she actually cared about and finding a way to apply it, her first case in which she applied psychology to legal proceedings. And then uh, I also get Beth's take on her New Yorker profile, the controversy that's followed her career and whether there are limits to the role that abstract knowledge can play in societal events. So as ever, if you enjoyed this episode or have enjoyed any of my previous ones, I would definitely appreciate if you give the show a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. Helps a ton in bringing in new listeners. Uh, I would also really appreciate if you'd consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. You can find that on codycommerce.substack.com. That is definitely the best way to keep up with all my work. It helps support the, the long-term efforts of the show and my writing. And in that writing, which I send out uh, a new piece every Friday, I try to get into this intersection of really applying our abstract, more theoretical knowledge that we derive from things like psychology and cognitive science to our on-the-ground, everyday experience of life. So if you'd like to check that out, please consider subscribing at codycommerce.substack.com. Thank you for listening, and without any further ado, here is Elizabeth Loftus. So I guess the, the first thing that I kind of want to ask about 
is what was the, how would you describe the intellectual background or culture of your family growing up? Was there an expectation in your family for academic success? You know, we'll, we'll talk about your, your degrees and that sort of stuff, but, you know, you went and, you know, places like UCLA and Stanford uh, when time when it wasn't as common for women to do that. Was there a sort of impetus coming from your family to, to, to achieve academic excellence? Uh, I would say for my brothers, yes, but not so much for the girl in the family. What did you make of that? Was that motivating in a way or is it just like you just went on in spite of that? No, I, I kind of thought that maybe I would um, do what my mother did, find, get married and help support the career of uh, the man I was married to and have a family and that, um, that that's what I would be doing. I, I mean, I certainly didn't expect to be a university professor uh, early on. And, and so was there a moment when that kind of changed for you when you realized, oh, I could, I could go out and do something different than that? Uh, or, you know, maybe there's, there's something else in store for me. I think that uh, when things changed is when I realized that I knew how to be an experimental psychologist. I knew how to think of an idea and design an experiment and conduct the experiment and analyze the data uh, and write up the article and get it published. Uh, I could do it start to finish, but that didn't happen until I was well into graduate school. Uh, okay. What uh, before we get to that? Then what was what was UCLA like for you? Did you enjoy your your time there? Well, I don't know about you, but I I lived at home, okay. um, and the reason I I lived very close to UCLA. So right, you were Bel Air originally. Well, that's where I was living. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah, about you know, about a mile from the campus, and um, and even though uh, my father had said to me, um, uh, "I've been paying taxes in the state of California for like twenty some odd years. You're you're going to the University of California. You can pick one, but that's what you're going to do." Um, when I looked at some of the other campuses that were available at the time. They, they just weren't right for me. Um, Berkeley, where my brothers went to school, was too, too many hippies and I wasn't a hippie. And another campus just seemed too interested in agriculture and I, that wasn't me. And so well, for one reason or another, it just UCLA seemed um, like the best of the bunch for me, of a fit for me. and. That's what I did, but it, it really meant that I didn't have the full college experience. I didn't, I didn't understand what it was like to go away to college until I went away to grad school. Mm, yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I could see how it would, if you lived at home, it would be kind of a souped up version of your education to that point. And then it's really the, the going away that kind of, uh, feels more like a break, make or break moment. How did you end up at Stanford then? How was, if you didn't, if you hadn't had that research experience yet, what was it that led you to be like, oh, well, I'm going to go pursue mathematical psychology at, at Stanford? Well, the reason for that is that um, when, when I entered UCLA, I was, a, I majored in math. I, 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 
In high school, I was good at math. Uh, I won a prize. I loved algebra. I loved geometry. I even loved trigonometry. But and so I majored in uh, math at UCLA. But then when I had to start taking calculus, I didn't like calculus so much. And so I, I started taking electives and I took introductory psychology and I absolutely loved it. I, I remember my professor um, that I loved the class. I can't even remember why, but I did. And so I started taking more and more electives in psychology and ended up with enough psychology credits to have a double major in math and psychology. So then I heard about this field called mathematical psychology and Stanford was the, the kind of number one place for mathematical psychology. And um, uh, I ended up going to Stanford in mathematical psychology, but it, I didn't really get very turned on to math psych. Um, I did what was required, uh, but I just never got passionate about the enterprise. However, I then had a chance to work with a different professor simultaneously and um, to work on a, a memory study. And that's what got me interested in memory. Was that, was that Richard Atkinson? Uh, well, Richard Atkinson was my master's uh, thesis advisor um, when I was still part of the math psychology uh, group. Um, but he and, and I did my master's thesis with him. Um, then I moved over to Patrick Soupy's because Patrick Soupy's was doing computer-assisted mathematics instruction. And that was a better fit for my math background. Uh, and so he, he was actually my PhD advisor, although uh, Dick Atkinson was on my committee. Okay, okay. Uh, so my, my understanding is that you were the only woman in your cohort, and uh, uh, that there was, uh, legend has it, there was an informal poll of sorts uh, where your, your colleagues, your peers in the Stanford Psych Department voted you the least likely to succeed as a, as a psychologist. Well, uh, that's, that's close to uh, accurate, but first of all, <laughs> I, I wasn't the only woman in oh, okay. the psych department. Um, there were other women, and even today, some of are still we're still friends from that time. But in the math psych group, um, and there's this picture that floats around in that particular year. I I was the only woman, and you see that in the in the picture. Although um, more women would later come into math psych. Um, so mathematical psychology, there was a Friday seminar where somebody in math psych, either a grad student or a faculty member uh, uh, would present what, what they were working on. And that's, you know, I would be sitting in the back. I, I would be not that interested in, in, in the material. Um, and I would use the opportunity to multitask, sort of half listening to the talks and half writing letters to my faraway relatives or occasionally hemming my skirts with sewing. Uh, and so that I think uh, was why some of the other students who picked up that I wasn't that interested in the material um, uh, decided to bless me with that uh, 
honor. Did you pick up on that? Was that something that defined your experience? Uh, the feeling of kind of like isolation or otherness or, or however you want to describe it? Or was that something you just kind of let, you know, r r roll off of you? Uh, I think I think I'm more let it roll off of me. I mean, I had, um, you know, other good experiences in graduate school. I made friends that are still my friends today. I um, mentored a one year younger graduate student and we got married a year later and had a long marriage um, and lots of, you know, interesting times together. We went through the Vietnam War kind of protest period. There was all kinds of other things happening. And the fact that I, I was kind of doing the math psych work and you know passing the classes and taking the comprehensive exams and passing the comps and doing all the things that you need to do to not drop out of school, um, uh, yeah, I think I it, it kind of rolled off of me. How long how long were you and Jeffrey married for? 23 years. And you guys got engaged 3 months after meeting, was it, right? Uh, we did. We did cuz he was about to get shipped off to Vietnam and we were we were struggling to figure out how to stop that from happening. And um we're exploring all different kinds of options that might protect him from having to go to that war. I love the uh, term I've seen you use to describe your guy's relationship, which is that you call him your husband. Yes, he's, well, somehow ex-husband sounds so, I don't know, unfriendly. And, and we are exceedingly friendly. So it's a better word for when you still, when you like each other. So let's see. There's one thing that I'm kind of curious about here, um, which is that, so you're, you're basically there was this time in graduate school where you weren't necessarily applying yourself to your fullest. Like you said, okay, well, I was kind of like, you know, not loving the math psych stuff and, uh, you know, I was doing well, uh, but I wasn't hitting my stride. So I guess I'm curious, like, uh, then once you did, and we'll, we'll talk about this more, once you did sort of hit your stride getting into memory research and particularly how it's applied in society, what do you think that says about the role that interest and kind of, I guess you could call intrinsic motivation plays in, in your development as a, as a psychologist and your sort of research career and all that sort of stuff? Uh, I'm not sure I can directly answer your question, but maybe by telling you a little bit more about what happened, it'll indirectly answer the question. Um, so I took a course with a, a professor. He's a social psychologist named Jonathan Friedman. And, and Jonathan who mostly did social psychology experiments, but he also was doing some research on semantic memory. And when he, he knew that, uh, you know, I was a, kind of a cognitive psychologist, although we didn't call ourselves that exactly right then. Um, he said, maybe you'd like to work on this project uh, on semantic memory. And so I began doing experiments with Friedman on semantic memory, which um, you would know, and, and maybe some of your 
listeners would know is about memory for words and concepts, our knowledge of the world, not the personal episodes of our lives. And that's, uh, that's where I learned how to be an experimental psychologist, how to, how to design an experiment and actually conduct the experiment, run the subjects, um, analyze the data, right, you know, with a lot of guidance from the professor, but write the article um, that we, and we co-authored a number of articles. And that's where I was when I exited grad school. I was doing research on semantic memory. It was a, a couple of years later that I started to do the work that is similar to what I do today, the work on eyewitness memory and false memories. So when you say that you, I guess, you know, kind of discovered that you could do this as an experimental psychologist, were you paying attention to the kind of like ease of execution that it just felt natural, that it was something that you were drawn to or, or, or was, did you felt you had a special kind of, uh, you know, proclivity to it, like some, some competency or was it just like, this feels natural to me. I'm going to go with this. I'm going to go with that feeling. I think the, the just the skills uh, that I developed in the process and being able to see the kind of the work product was kind of gratifying. But it was a couple of years later that I, I did start to ask myself, do I really care about the structure of, of words and concepts in semantic memory? Uh, do, do I care about that deeply or, or am I working as hard as I'm working for the benefits of, of doing that work. And, and the benefits are many They're for, to be a, a member of the scientific community, to, to be successful in, in that role, to train students, to have them have opportunities and publications that will help them get jobs. Um, was I more interested in the rewards of this work or the actual I, ideas? and and it was through that thought process that I thought, you know, I really, I really do want to do work that has more obvious practical applicability. That was a very deliberate thought on my part. So there I was, I, I, I knew something about memory. Um, and I always had a, a kind of a keen interest in legal matters. Maybe I could blend those two things, memory, legal matters. How about the memory of witnesses to crimes and accidents and other legally important events? And that's what set me in the direction of the work that I would then do for decades and be quite passionate about, which is the work on eyewitness memory. Before we kind of dive into that stuff, I guess... In, through this period that we're talking about now, sort of, I guess, from undergraduate through, um, you know, when you when this line of research started to come into its own, were there any ever time were there were there any times that you thought about quitting or or any major points of oh I'm not sure that I want to continue to do this? Uh, no, not 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 because of the work, no, um, but because of uh, Jeff and the threat of him being shipped off to Vietnam, 
Um, we contemplated a lot of things to avoid that fate for him. Um, and one of which was that he would go into some officer training school that would keep him out of Vietnam, that would take us to another state that I would, if, if we were gonna be together, that would require me to leave grad school. Um, we thought about, you know, would we go to Canada? Uh, I mean, we thought about a lot of things having to do with the war, but um, no, I, I, I didn't particularly think about quitting grad school. I mean, I was, I mean, I knew how to be a student. I was a good student. I knew how to take tests and be a student. And so I was gonna, I was gonna finish that up unless there was something else like a war that was gonna take me away from uh, finishing what I had started. Yeah, nice. Okay, so at this point with, you, you know, kind of this insight that, well, okay, I, I've been doing memory research and I, and I like that to some extent, and I want to do something that's more societally impactful, and I'm kind of drawn to legal matters, and okay, what's the intersection of these? Well, let's start to look at how memory plays out um, in, in, you know, legal proceedings and whatnot. So what, what was the very first step that you took after that? Was it an experiment or was it getting involved in expert testimony? Oh, no, it was definitely research for sure. The expert uh, came, that came quite a bit later. Um, well, I wanted to study memory of witnesses because then I could use my memory uh, expertise but it was about a legal matter. But I had to decide, well, what, uh, what topic? Because there's so many factors that affect eyewitness memory that I could have studied. I could have studied how stress affects memory or how the passage of time or uh, you know, whether people are trying to identify a person or an object. Um, there are all kinds of things you can look at. But what I decided to look at, and I don't remember what led me there, was the questioning process. When people are questioned about their experiences, uh, how, how does the nature of those questions affect what they remember? How they answer the questions and, and what they remember. Um, around that same time, I had a meeting with a former Stanford professor of mine not the one who got me into memory research, but a different professor who had gone to work for the Department of Transportation. And I was telling him, I wanna, I wanna study eyewitness memory, people's memory for crimes, accidents. And he said to me, well, I, you know, I'm with the Department of Transportation. If you, if you look at accidents, there's, there's research money there for people who are interested in accidents. Um, maybe we can, find a way to fund some of this research. But I still didn't know exactly what I was gonna do. And uh, I mean, Jeff tells a story about how one day I came home and said, I think I'm gonna study eyewitness memory for accidents. I uh, don't know really what I, I, I'm gonna do yet. Um, I think I'm gonna study the questioning process and I may have a, a line to get some funding for this work, uh, but, and, Somehow from that germ, uh, I ended up with uh, some ideas about looking at leading questions and how the wording of a question 
can affect the answer that somebody gives. And that was the start. Had you ever been involved in a, in a legal case before, like personally? No. What, I guess um, my general question is, is, is what drew you to legal proceedings and, uh, you know, like what, like what was the kind of impetus for that? And then how did you have a sense of um, what went on in those? The kind of subtext for the question is because I'm thinking like, you know, about for myself, if I were to, you know, kind of ask myself, oh, well, how do I apply my research in social psychology to legal proceedings? The first place I would start is that I would think about all the TV shows that I have seen in which legal proceedings go down. So uh, my, my point is, is that, you know, like, I guess I'm curious, how, do, how was it that you uh, were familiar with, you know, kind of like the, um, enough of the minutia? Yeah. I get your question. I, I get it. I get it. So, um, well, I already mentioned that I went through this period where I thought to myself when I was doing the semantic memory work, which I was still doing for you know, once I finished my PhD, um, and uh, that's what I was giving. If I was invited to give a colloquium somewhere, I would give it on the semantic memory work. Um, I even had a job interview at Harvard, gave my semantic memory talk, got a job offer from Harvard. I mean, so I was, but, but when I said to myself, do I really care about the structure of semantic knowledge in memory? Uh, or am, am I working this hard for the, the other kind of rewards that come with being a productive experimental psychologist? Then I asked myself, well, what am I interested in? What am I, what am I inherently interested in? And then I said to myself, well, what do I like to talk about when I'm in a social gathering? And you can talk about anything you want. Um, what do I talk about? And I reflected on something that had happened, um, something that had happened in the news that I was that I had been talking about and wondering about, and it, it was that somebody you know came out to their car. Um, they were threatened by uh, another individual who was threatening and and pushing them. Uh, and they somehow hurt the person who was threatening and pushing them, and then they got in trouble. And I thought, well, you know, shouldn't a pe person be able to defend themselves when they're the ones who were attacked in the first place? What's the legal issue here? I mean, and so there I was in the midst of this pondering of this media story. Um, and I thought, I I'm interested in legal matters, legal issues. Uh, anyhow, so <clears throat> that's how I got to to that. But I did realize that I didn't know very much about the legal process. And that's why soon after I had uh, started doing these experiments on eyewitness memory, I volunteered my, my services for free to a uh, criminal defense attorney. I said, you know, I'll consult on a case with you. He was a friend of the family and he was a public defender. I'll... I'll consult for you, with you for free on what I've learned about eyewitness memory in the last year or two. I've been working on these issues. If you'll let me just hang out with you and maybe could 
talk with you about a case and watch you interview witnesses and be a part of the process. Um, so that's what I did. Uh, we, I worked with him on a, a, murder a, a murder case where a woman was a defendant. Her defense was self-defense. She ended up being acquitted of the murder. So the jury did find that she acted in self-defense. And I wrote about that case in an article for Psychology Today magazine. I wrote about some of the experiments that I had done and some of the science that I communicated to the defense attorney. Um, and that article is what um, plunged me into the legal world because that magazine at the time was very, very popular. I mean, maybe it had a circulation of a million and people read it who were interested in psychology, but also many people in the legal world. And so I started getting calls from lawyers saying, you know, would you work on my case? Uh, would you come to my conference and speak to my group of lawyers about what, uh, you know, a, a memory psychologist can do in a, in a, in a criminal case or, or even a civil case? And um, so that's, that's how it all started. You know, it's kind of funny hearing you, you tell that story now. I guess I, you know, I kind of wonder, like, okay, so from the perspective of the psychologist, it makes sense. Research is done on this stuff. You bring it to a lawyer. The lawyer, you know, sort of it's implemented in the, the court proceedings, and then everyone's fascinated with it. But I guess from the legal perspective, it's kind of funny that they hadn't had the they hadn't used the tools of psychology yet to start to probe eyewitness, um, eyewitness testimony, despite the fact that that's such a huge part of the legal process and that underpins so much of, of, of what happens and uh, you know, so much of what counts as, as evidence. It's kind of funny from, a, you know, the, the, I, the, as from the concept of the legal institution that that went so long without having Im empirical kind of work to, to, to underline it? Um, well, there were members of the legal profession that had certainly been writing about wrongful convictions and, and also had been aware of eyewitness issues, at least some of them. And, and so these famous demonstrations where somebody would charge into a class, an ongoing class and create a commotion. <clears throat> and the professor would then ask the students to <clears throat> try to remember what happened and identify the intruder and so on. Those, those demonstrations were, were going on before uh, I started to do this work. So, so I, mean, I, had, I had a few things I could read from, from, from the past, but, um, you know, in terms of uh, psychologists testifying in court as memory experts, that was at its very beginning and very controversial. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so that was your first expert witness case. Um, the the woman accused of of killing her abusive boyfriend. Uh, no, I wasn't an expert in the case. I was, you know, I was consulting and I was present during lots of the interviews and kind of got to 
kind of go along with the attorney, like almost like take your daughter to work. Uh, it sounds like you learned a lot from that. Um, but, uh, but I'm curious about the, the nature of this controversy. So what's, what was the controversy that people were, what were, what were people concerned about? What were people upset about in that first, uh, what, what was the controversy? So th- th- this would bring us, this would be, um, like in the early, uh, 1970s and, lawyers were beginning to see, particularly criminal defense lawyers that had been long facing a problem of a prosecution witness who would come into court and say something like, I was so frightened when that happened, that's, I'll never forget that face and that's the guy, even when it wasn't the guy. And that defense attorneys were often stymied in terms of how to respond to that kind of uh, evidence because particularly for a sympathetic witness or victim, you, you, you can't be overly aggressive in your cross-examination, but maybe, maybe a memory expert could come in and talk about what, what we know about memory and the factors in this case that could create problems for an accurate memory. And so the defense attorneys tried to team up with a, a few of the memory experts who were around at that time and to introduce this expert testimony into their cases. The prosecutors objected and, and usually, usually the judges would deny the expert testimony. Usually they would say, this is all a matter of common sense. Everybody knows this stuff. Therefore, it's not a proper subject matter for expert testimony. Um, or the judge might say, this is invading the province of the jury. It's up to the jury to decide whether this witness is in a position to see and hear what's being claimed. We don't need an expert to take over the jury's job here. Um, so they wouldn't let the expert in. Um, when the defendant was convicted, because positive eyewitness testimony is very powerful and the defendant would appeal the conviction saying, you know, I I didn't get to use my expert. My trial wasn't fair. In the early seventies and into the early eighties, the appellate courts just routinely affirmed the convictions. They said, this is a matter of discretion. The judge did not abuse discretion in denying this expert testimony. We're not gonna overturn this conviction. So all that was what I call the controversy of the time uh, with defense attorneys and some memory experts attempting to introduce this new expert testimony, um, prosecutors opposing it, and um, mostly the convictions were standing after the expert had been excluded. And then in 1983, something different happened where the Supreme Court of the state of Arizona overturned a conviction in a murder case after the trial judge excluded my testimony. And that was the first time that there had been a reversal based on the exclusion of a memory uh, expert. Uh, So that was a turning point. A year later, California in, in a case called People versus McDonald reversed a conviction in a murder case. 
when the memory expert was excluded, the state of Alaska, the state of Washington. So now that now there are a string of reversals where basically the appellate court has found that essentially the defense had a right to, to have this testimony. So it's a whole lot easier now for defense attorneys to introduce this kind of expert testimony in their cases. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So is that a different kind of controversy than this, your, I guess, you know, the last few decades of your work has engendered? Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, the eyewitness expert testimony, um, generally what the expert would do is go in and talk about, are there factors in this situation that are known to produce difficulties for accurate eyewitness testimony? Uh, was, was there a very short exposure time um, was the lighting especially poor? Uh, was there a long retention interval? Was there a lot of um, post-event suggestion and, and, and misinformation floating around in the media? Uh, was the, the identification test a fair test? When you have an accumulation of these factors, um, then you can say this is a kind of situation that has a lot of factors that have been associated with more errors in memory. And that's, that's the kind of thing that an expert might say. Um, what happened in the more recent decades is um, people were, in the earlier cases, there was a crime, there was a real victim, something really happened, but just memory for the details is what was off or potentially off. In later years, people, you know, the, the issue was, were, were some of these people just completely making up entire events that didn't happen? So there was no crime, but it was a completely created, what we're now calling rich false memory that was now being introduced into court cases. And, and this, this, often these cases, these uh, claims were being I'll call it created in psychotherapy. So now there's a focus on what's going on in, in some psychotherapy sessions that's leading these patients to develop these very, very rich false memories. And that became highly controversial and of course very irritating to the clinical field um, uh, because of the accusations that they were even inadvertently involved in creating injustice rather than, than curing their patients. So before we dive full scale into, into some of that stuff, how did you, how did you feel about that New Yorker piece? Um, well, I have many, many feelings about it, but, um, I wish there had been a little bit more about my work and the, and the work on the malleability of memory and, and a little maybe less about my mother and the childhood tragedies and the drama of trying to sort out what happened to my mother so long ago. Uh, I wish there'd been a little less about the Jane Doe case, which, you know, I've been dealing with for a couple of decades now, um, but I liked 
the writer, I felt um, that we kind of clicked in, in the interviews. She was a, an excellent interviewer. Um, I liked interacting with my brothers and, it, and we spent a lot of time talking about, about the author and, a, um, and anticipating what was gonna be in there and then debriefing on it after it came out. Um, I, I was surprised at the reactions of people. I had people write to me saying, oh my God, you poor thing. That was such a hatchet job. How awful, she didn't get you. And then I had people write to me and say, this is the best thing I ever read about you. It humanized you. Um, so there was such mixed reactions in, in, in people I like and admire, consider friends, family. Um, that was surprising. But I mean, all in all, I was, you know, it's, you know, pretty exhilarating to have the New Yorker do a profile on you. God, no kidding. Yeah. I mean, even the chancellor of my university sent me a one word email, which was just, wow. <laughs> hey, Cody here. So as I've mentioned on the show before, I am graduating from my PhD program pretty soon here, hopefully in spring 2022. And while that's great, it also means I have to start making plans for my next phase. And ideally, I'd like to do this. I'd like to podcast and write and be able to achieve at least a semblance of what looks like a next career step producing this kind of work. So it is time for me to take the pod from something that merely exists to the next level. And part of what this entails is that I am going to be offering a premium subscription to my podcasts and writing. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself recently is, what have I learned from doing this podcast and how has it affected me personally? And so I am starting a segment called CogRev Redux, in which I listen back to my catalog of episodes, starting from my first interview over two years ago, and I edit down the original to a 30-minute show featuring the highlights of what that guest said and, and what really stuck with me over that time, as well as my own reflections on where I was when the interview was conducted, what I was interested in, and how that's all changed. And I will also go into any backstory I have with the guest or strange behind-the-scenes antics that happened during the taping that didn't make the final cut. So I will offer two free CogRev Redux episodes in January, then from there, they will come out for premium subscribers every other week. With the premium subscription, you also get my series called Reviewed. It's Reviewed, in which I revisit, reread, or reconsider the books, movies, podcasts, or other content that has most impacted me throughout the years. In this show, I love to ask people about the books that have most influence their thinking, and so now I want to explore my own answers to those questions in greater depth. There's also a new series I'm launching called The Grad Student's Guide to Podcasting. It features everything I've learned while doing Cognitive Revolution through my PhD, as well as interviews with other graduate student podcasters. That will be coming out throughout January 2022. Anyway, like I said, this is part of me building out toward my next phase, so I really do appreciate the support. 
If you are interested in signing up for a subscription, you can check out codycommerce.substack.com. That's codycommerce.substack.com. Even if you just sign up for the free version, it helps a ton to support my future work. Okay, thank you for hearing me out. Now, back to the show. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I def- definitely one gets the sense from reading it that the author had to gain a lot of trust with you and had to in- integrate herself into your life. Of course, it sounds like via Zoom, uh, but to, to, to a significant uh, degree. And uh, yeah, you know, it was, it's funny that it's, it wasn't very much about your scientific research. It really felt more like a piece of psychoanalysis and, you know, trying to make sense of the sort of inner machinations of your mind. And then also to kind of have this sort of like meta insight about like, well, uh, Beth Loftus studies memory. Can we unpack the nature of Beth's, Beth Loftus's memories themselves? Uh, and so that was kind of like how the piece was structured was around kind of, you know, like having that as the epicentral mystery, you know? Well, that's very, you know, insightful of you because I, I do feel... Um, she had this psychoanalytic theory that I am what I am, became what I became um, because of certain childhood tragedies that happened to me. And, and that was her theory and she was sticking to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought, like, personally, I thought it was a beautiful piece. Uh, I think, you know, you can take, I, I, I think both, you know, uh, sides are poten- potentially have a, have an argument that you described for the, the positive and negative in terms of the valence. But I thought there was a lot of beauty to it. Uh, whether or not there's a lot of truth, who's to say, but maybe that's the nature of psychoanalytic insights. Oh, well, there is a, there, there is a lot of truth. And, and one, one of the things that, <clears throat> one of the things that I experienced through, through that long interaction with her and and you know then reacting to the comments of other people that she interviewed is there were a number of people who remember things differently from the way I did and that bothered me uh, that bothered me and I found myself oh like for example I mean um, I always remember that my mother drowned in a swimming pool and my cousin was telling her, no, it was a creek. And I, I, I said, no, all, the, all these decades, it's a swimming pool. It was a swimming pool. And it was just, that had been my memory. And now I had a cousin who was remembering something different. It bothered me. I mean, it's sort of unsettling in a, in a sense of bothering. And so when the journalist actually found a, a little newspaper clipping that from the small town where my mother had drowned that talked about Los Angeles woman drowns in a swimming pool. I thought, okay, so there's the contemporaneous proof that my memory is, is the right memory. Uh, so here I was having my memory be challenged by a, by a family member. Um, feeling unsettled about it, I, I think it helped me understand why, why 
it might be so upsetting when, when I am commenting on a court case and challenging somebody else's memory, a memory that they think is true, but I think might not be true, that that could be unsettling for them. And so it, 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 it helped me to appreciate why I'm so irritating to some people. Speaking of that irritation, I guess, so definitely part of, you know, uh, what has been in your public profile over the past, you know, couple decades, however, how long you want to say is, is controversy around some pretty high profile, uh, court proceedings. And, um, I guess summarizing other people's, you know, sort of critiques being like, well, you're, uh, giving tools to, to powerful people for sort of evading, uh, uh, you know, what we would, uh, have reason to think are, legitimate, credible allegations against them. So I guess without having to necessarily defend uh, that at the moment, how do you feel about having done so much work throughout your career that is so controversial uh, and and so publicly controversial sometimes? Well, well, first of all, um, I've been involved in so many many cases where the, the same memory science is introduced on behalf of poor people people who are represented by public defenders, um, people who, who, who have benefited from um, being able to have um, a memory psychologist be a part of, of their case. And, and um, it's not just the high profile rich people who get this, poor people, if, if it's available, it, it should be available to everyone. And a, and a, we, we live in a democratic society. I don't know why people seem to forget this, where people are supposed to be innocent till proven guilty and they have a right to a defense. And it's not just a defense lawyer. I, I, I had one friend say to me, well, they might have right to a lawyer, but they don't have, you're a cognitive psychologist. They don't have a right to a cognitive psychologist. I, and I had to write back to her and say, wait a minute, the right to a lawyer is not just a a lawyer, a person, it's a right to a meaningful defense. It's a right to the resources to put on a meaning, a meaningful defense. And that right is a right for all of us. It just so happens that it's those high profile cases are the, that are the ones that get into the news. They're, they're the ones where there's been a lot of media coverage, which is often sensationalized and often false or exaggerated. Um, and gets people riled up um, when they don't, they're not in the trenches. They haven't read the original FBI interviews to know what was, what, what was, what was originally said and how it got distorted and changed and morphed into something else. They, they, they just look at the final sausage after it's already been made. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely, uh, you know, find I think that that was a the the New Yorker piece definitely stated that clearly that you had even though you have been a part of these sensationalized trials you'd done a lot of work uh, where it was not you know the the rich white guy getting you know getting off or or whatever it was you know uh, defendants of of color who were poor and didn't have a lot of resources who are benefiting from that. Um, so definitely that came across in the New Yorker piece. Um, but I guess my question is, uh, so with the line of defense that's sort of like, 
well, I'm presenting general findings and these are things we know from experimental research. These are facts about how memory works or, 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 or fails to work. Do you think that there is any kind of limit to that line of reasoning that like, you know, obviously there's, there's, there's a lot to it, but is, is there a point where it's like, okay, here is where we kind of have to draw the bounds where, where a, maybe a, even more of a gray area comes in? The knowledge of memory and memory malleability comes not just from laboratory experiments, but from, from, from also from different kinds of research. They're, they're field studies where people who are undergoing a highly stressful event um, for some good reason, um, or it has happened to them in their, in their life for some reason, uh, studies of those individuals have shown malleability of memory. Um, there are studies where people uh, have developed memories of things that are impossible. And it eventually was proven that, that these things couldn't have happened. So there's a, a body of research that shows that people can have distorted memories and even richly detailed, completely false memories for things that didn't happen. And, and I don't think that the public is necessarily aware of that possibility. It, it remains a possibility in some of these cases. And I, um, and I think that, uh, you know, the defense ought to have a right to present an alternative theory to the prosecution's theory that just because the person said it, it means it's true. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the, um, the thing that I am trying to make sense of in, you know, the trying to, to entertain, you know, some of the, the, the arguments people have, have, have made in counter to some of the things that you're saying um, is that it feels like sometimes there is an asymmetry um, between, you know, when we, uh, when we learn something in the lab or through these field studies or through whatever uh, means of acquiring empirical knowledge we have and how that actually plays out in, uh, you know, the things that we see in society. For example, one of the things that um, you know you said in an interview with with Nature in, in 2013, which I really liked, was um, quote, "I cringe at the idea of hurting genuine victims, but when an innocent person is accused, we have a whole new set of victims, and I'm more horrified by an innocent person getting convicted than by a guilty person being acquitted." Okay, maybe someone agrees with that. Maybe that doesn't. But that's that seems like uh, an asymmetry where. Um, you know, you're saying when the facts are ambiguous and there's a, a probability distribution that's not very easy to, to size up and figure out what's going on, I'm going to let this moral and ethical consideration influence my choice or, or the way I kind of lean one way or the other. Um, not in my final uh, verdict, but in, in kind of how I'm going to conduct this. And so I guess I, I you know, I'm just wondering, isn't there another more moral ethical asymmetry, you know, when you run the risk of giving guilty people in power the tools to sort of leverage against weaker victims, particularly, and this is my final, you know, thing I'll say on this is is like, you know, when the when the cost of discrediting 
you know, this this uh, this this potential victim, uh, they're really their only tool that that a vulnerable person like that has is their their word in in sort of bringing justice to someone who has a lot more resources to defend themselves. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. All, all that's kind of winding, but um, yeah, what do you what do you think about that? Well, there are lots of uh, things to unpack in that long question of yours, but um, but but we do as individuals, I suppose, have some feeling about which which error is worse: convicting an innocent person or acquitting a guilty one. Which error is worse? And there's this famous Blackstone quote about it's ten times worse to convict an innocent person than to acquit a guilty one. Um, that's Blackstone's ratio, uh, 10 times worse. Other people can have different ratios. For me, I've, I have had a longstanding passion about wrongful convictions and the horror of sending an innocent person to prison and, and the, the tragedy and, and horror that creates for not only that individual, but their extended family uh, and others. Many other people in our society would think, well, that's, that's okay. I, I feel it, I don't wanna let a guilty person go. So I'm, I'm, let's just have a high conviction rate. There are plenty of people in our society who that, that's the way they, they swing. And um, so our world is made up of, of uh, I suppose, a variety of people who differ on how they think about Blackstone and his ratio and these two types of errors. And I guess we maybe we find a system that can somehow how balance these interests. But um, there's, there's, there's probably a role for all of us to play in figuring out what to do here. Yeah, well, uh, there's certainly more that that could be sort of uh, unpacked in in in, in all that and, and pursued. But uh, I know uh, you've got some other stuff to take care of today, so I will wrap up with one final question here. Um, uh, what are what are three books that have most impacted you? So, um, well, I'll tell you my my. I think one of my most favorite books. Um, if, if I were to say to you, um, I've got a book to recommend that is all about the history, politics, and geography of Chile. Would you like to read that? Most of the people I know would probably say, ah, I don't think I'd put that high on my list. But you, you read a book called Missing by Thomas Hauser, which is about a man who went missing in Chile and the efforts of his father to find him and a film was made out of this book. And it, it's a powerful story. And while you're reading Missing, you absorb all this information about the history, the politics, um, and geography of Chile without even trying. And that's why I love, that's why I love that book. But but you, you wanted three. Um, I'm already hooked on that one. I'm already uh, gonna go, that sounds incredible. No, you want to read Missing, but here's another one. The Temple Bombing by Melissa Faye Green, which is about a 
a crime, that uh, a bombing of a temple in uh, Atlanta some time ago. That's a, that's a fantastic book. And I, here's a book called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me by uh, Tavris and Aronson, two friends of mine, uh, about how we justify, uh, well, we don't admit our mistakes. It might've been a mistake out there, but somebody else is at fault. Uh, so I think you can see that I like nonfiction and uh, those tend to be my favorite books. Cool. Well, I'm really excited about the Chile one for sure. Um, that, that, that sounds fantastic. Uh, but yeah, Beth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It was, it was really a pleasure. And, uh, you know, uh, you've done so much uh, interesting and, and admirable work. Hope to see you in person one day. That was my conversation with Elizabeth Loftus. Thank you for listening. You know, so I guess, well, you know, on this show, I tend not to not only just get into like, you know, have controversial people on, but I tend not to press them on, you know, okay, let's hear your big meaty hot take and I'm going to try and, you know, skewer it. And, and like, you know, that's just not my style. It's not what I'm trying to do. And I'm really of two minds about that. Why? Because on the one hand, you know, this show, it's, you know, it's, it's meant to be positive. It's meant to be, you know, I want to, my goal is to present the person that I'm interviewing in the best possible light and to give them, you know, to give, to give the listener the, the most compelling version of, of that, of, of that individual. But on the other hand, you know, no one likes happy stories. No one wants to hear, uh, you know, the, 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 the positive take, at least, you know, like at the end of the day, what draws in, eyeballs, in this case ears, is controversial shit, right? And if you look at, you know, I don't know, whoever it is, like the people who their, you know, their careers really take off, you know, 20 years ago, Sam Harris, today it's someone like Rob Henderson, if you, I've had him on the show, I mean, you, you may have seen him on Twitter or whatever, but these are people who take on controversial shit, and that is how they get their message out to you know a, a large number of people and so i don't know having the whole elizabeth loftus episode she was very generous with her time and i really did enjoy talking to her but it, it makes me think about well what should my approach be should i try and be more directly controversial and lean into that sort of stuff in an effort to bring more people in to listening to the show and caring about what I have to say. Is that where the interesting stuff is? And I should care more about that. Like that, that's actually like legitimate, not just about publicity. I don't know. Um, I don't know. You know, like, like I said, the way that I naturally want to think about it and approach it is, is, is to bring out the best in, in people in this more favorable way and not necessarily try and uh, push them. But I don't know. Let me just chalk it up to say that it's something that I'm currently evolving on and growing on in the way that I approach it and the way that I deal with it in the show. I think that giving people a you know free pass and not exploring the more difficult topics, that's probably not the right way to go about it. And you know, towards the end, I do try and push back a little bit on some things that I think after having studied her material are some counter arguments that I see, but you know, I think you can kind of tell if you listen closely that I'm a little bit, you know, I don't want to say nervous, but I'm not like, you know, it, it's, it, it feels like, uh, 
you know, you can tell there's like a little bit of tremor in my voice or something like that. And so I'm not at, at my most comfortable sort of pushing on, on that sort of thing. But at any rate, like I said, it's something that I'm thinking about and evolving on. And, and I don't think I'm ever going to be Sam Harris or, or Rob Henderson. It's just not who I am. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the areas in which I'm, I'm growing as a, as an interviewer and a podcaster and in the way I, you know, deal with this kind of material. So yeah. Um, if you did like this episode, another person who does false memory research is Julia Shaw, who I had on and she was one of my favorite people that I had on in the sort of early portion of the show. So, uh, you can definitely check out my interview with her and she's a lot less controversial. She just, you know, pretty much unanimously considered awesome as, as she should be. I, I really enjoyed talking to her and, um, you know, she's done a lot of cool work on this. And so if you're interested in learning more about that, definitely check out her work and my conversation with her. So at any rate, thank you for listening and uh, we'll be back for another episode of Cognitive Podcast.